My name is Jordan Michalski. Um, I'm the student ministry's assistant here uh, at Soul Sanctuary. Um, essentially, my job is to hang out with our junior high students to teach them about Jesus and have an absolute blast while doing it. And that's kind of how I sum up my role. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was told, hey, we have an opening on a Sunday morning and we need somebody to speak. Would you like to speak? And those opportunities don't come all that often to speak up here. As you know, some of you, this is your first time seeing my face. So, yes, I jumped at the opportunity. I was thrilled. Um, And I had a topic burning on the back of my mind that I wanted to talk about. And it worked out because they said, you can talk about anything you want. So I was like, sweet, let's do this. Um, I want to begin before anything this morning uh, by reading a passage of scripture. Now, we're going to jump all over the Bible this morning. And we're going to learn from a a series of different texts. But this one's going to kind of frame our conversation. Every scripture is going to show itself up on the screen. So I want you to take a look there to Galatians 2, 28. And it says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Before I go any further, I'd be lying if I told you that I was super comfortable up here in front of everyone. Um, I I do speak to classes of students, a part of the program that I am in university, and I also speak to my junior highs, but this is a little bit more daunting. There are really bright lights in my eyes. Um, So before I go any further, I'm going to let you know how this is going to unravel. I know myself enough that after a couple minutes, I'll get comfortable. Um, And I'll stop shaking like I am right now. Um, So I'm going to start by telling you a funny story. This funny story kind of relates to my life. And then I'm going to seamlessly transition into exactly what I came here to talk about. None of you are going to notice. You're all going to laugh along with me. And then you're going to listen to what I have to say. Is, Is that okay with you? Okay, perfect. There's a couple of you along with me this morning. It's fantastic. So my story. Have you ever had an aha moment, a moment where kind of a light bulb goes on, where, where everything that you've ever done, it kind of seems like it just doesn't make sense anymore because you found a better way of doing it. And I want to tell you about an aha moment that I had. And I had this moment back this summer when I was in Moscow. Um, anyone who knows anything about Eastern Europe knows that uh, its, similarities, uh, start, its similarities to Canada start and end at Uh, geography and meteorology. There's not much else that is similar. And that applies to things like government. It applies to things like diet, the kind of foods we eat. Uh, And it applies to things like driving. And driving was perhaps what I noticed the most. I've told my junior high students here at Seoul uh, numerous times about different times that I almost died while driving or thought that I was about to die while driving. Um, Just petrified. Uh, But not necessarily the scary encounters are what my aha moment was. It was the fact that it was efficient. And now this sounds crazy because you think about Moscow. It's coming out of a communist era. And you have 25 million unofficially people packed into a city that is maybe double the size of Winnipeg or one and a half times the size of Winnipeg. So how do you fit all that people in such a small space? You build up instead of building out. And so everyone lives in apartments. And during... The communist era, no one had vehicles, but now everyone has vehicles, so there are way more vehicles than there is infrastructure to support the amount of vehicles that there are. So, in Moscow, if there is one lane, as painted by the lines, but there is space for two cars, 
then there is two lanes. Now, this doesn't happen here in Canada. And, and another one, if, if you pull up to a red light in Moscow and there are two lanes and you're in the right lane, but there's a car that's behind you who wants to turn right, they reserve the right to lay on the horn until you decide to do some tricky maneuver to allow them through. And this happens, there, there's no patience on the road as it appears. But it's almost like it's kind of like the golden rule of driving. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Because when you're in that situation, you can lay on your horn and somebody will move for you. Or you can squeeze in two cars into that really tight yield and you can get to your destination all of maybe 10 seconds faster. Now, my aha moment coming back to Winnipeg was that this was an efficient system. We didn't listen to the lines. We didn't listen to, per se, the rules of the road. We just got to where we needed to go, and we respected other people who were getting to where they needed to go. Uh, I say the word respect, and all that comes to my mind is like Russian YouTube videos of car accidents and fights. And Anyways, as soon as we got off the airplane here in Canada, it was quickly apparent that, that you just couldn't drive wherever you wanted to. Uh, no matter how efficient you thought it was, the law thought differently. And so my aha moment kind of faded. But this morning I want to talk about an aha moment which I believe has the potential not to fade. I think it has the potential, if further explored, to have life-changing effects on all of us. Now this concept of aha moments reminds me of a grade 12 student of mine last semester. So some backstory here. I was teaching a global issues course and we were talking about the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights and what kind of rights we are all guaranteed under international law. I then asked my class this question. I asked them, by show of hands, how many of you would consider yourselves to be a feminist? And out of a class of about 16 students, there was one young man in the back of the class who shot up his hand, and there was one young lady at the front of the class who kind of gave like, the half hand she wasn't quite sure. And now, I'm sure if I asked you that same question this morning, there would be some of those who would shoot up their hands and who would uh, defend their feminism, and some of you who would say, well, I'm definitely not a feminist, and then there would be some of you who would say, well, I don't even know what that word means or why you're using it in church. Now, I asked each student in the class to explain their position in our following discussion. Why did you put up your hand or why didn't you? And those who didn't put up their hands had very similar responses. Feminists are women who hate men, or feminists are women who hate when men buy them food, or throw a drink in their face if he buys them a drink, or who will yell at you when they hold, or when you hold the door open for them. And these are the conversations that started flowing. I let each student say their piece, and then I put up this slide. The definition of what a feminist is, and I asked them again, after reading this, how many of you would now consider yourself to be a feminist? And the vast majority of hands in the class went up. And this led to a very informative and open conversation about the sexual revolution of the 1960s. It, a conversation about bra burnings and how titles of feminist can take on certain characteristics based on those who associate themselves with the term. But this all relates to my grade 12 student in that classroom. 
And after all our discussions for the day had ended, right before I was about to release the class, he raised his hand and he expressed his confusion regarding gender equality and Christianity. Now, he spoke of the fact that he went to a church. And his church's board of deacons was primarily made up of men. Now, there were a few deaconesses on the board. And those deaconesses, uh, they had power to discuss with the other deacons when making decisions. But when it came time to voting, they had no vote. And this didn't sit well with the student. Something about how his church saw the role of women all of a sudden conflicted within his spirit. But this particular view of women is nothing foreign to Christianity. When looking back at history, we, have, we can see where the church has rejected equality through uh, the equality of both men and women, placing women often in subordinate positions to men. And throughout biblical translations even, during the 15th century, there's a female New Testament apostle named Junia who was conveniently changed to the name Junius. It was easier to change her identity in a translation of the scripture than to answer some of the tough questions which came considering her actual position. And the sad thing is, is that for years, passages of scripture have been used as weapons, forcing women into submission of men, perpetuating discrimination, violence, and abuse. And this is where I want to focus our conversation this morning. I know for a fact that there are some of you sitting here right now who are incredibly uncomfortable with everything I've said since talking about Moscow. And you're asking yourself, where is he going to go with this? And I want to tell you, I didn't come here to convert anyone to a feminist agenda or to convert anyone to some sort of political ideology. That's not my goal. I did come here to look into the scriptures, to talk about an issue which the church has done a really good job not talking about. My exploration of the traditional role of women in the church sparked when I came across a book by an author named Sarah Bessie titled Jesus Feminist. Bessie proposed a series of thoughts which I couldn't ignore and which I believe needed further explanation. When browsing Amazon.ca, there was a vast library on many prominent social issues of our day written by Christian scholars. There was a wealth of literature on the topics of abortion, on the topics of poverty, sex, slavery. But what I noticed was that the concept of sexism within Christian communities was pushed to the back burner. There was a myriad of books which talked about roles of man and wife in a godly marriage. And there were a couple books about uh, women fleeing patriarchal cults in the American Midwest. But when I was searching for books that re revisited the traditional role of women, my search was drastically limited limited and exponentially smaller and this is funny to me because our society knows that on average women make 30 to 40 percent less than their male counterparts for completing the same work in a recent publication from oxford university it was documented that the largest financial givers to churches are in many cases women from low socioeconomic statuses so the church knows how important women are because, after all, who gives the most amount of service volunteer time? The answer is women. That also, side note, I do need a couple male soul fusion leaders. 
back to where I was going. Um, the, the church knows that its largest volunteer force is women. So knowing how vital women are to the life of the church, why don't we discuss topics regarding to women more often? And some of you might write me off right here. Things aren't as bad as they used to be, Jordan. Or we've got bigger fish to fry. But I want you to walk with me for a couple moments this morning. My fear doesn't rest in the fact that, or the thought that North American women are going to lose their basic rights. My fear is that if the church doesn't start recognizing the inherent equality between sexes, we will not allow women to reach their God-given potential within the body of Christ. Many laws and institutions that the church has held sacred are doing little more than ostracizing half of the body of Christ. This message isn't specifically targeted toward women. I speak to everyone, regardless of your gender, age, or any other defining characteristic. So how does this apply to men then? It applies to both men and women in a very similar way. Men and women interact with each other daily, whether in the home, in the workplace, or in public. As both men and women need to explore what the Bible says about women to begin to understand the value that God places on his children. For most people, when thinking about the role of women in the church, biblical passages written by the Apostle Paul come to mind. Many Christians find themselves at an impasse in their faith when they believe something in their heart and their mind and then they come to the scriptures and they seem to have an apparent contradiction on their hands. Instead of puzzling it out, instead of wrestling with it, they push it to the back burner, out of sight and out of mind. I don't believe that this is what faith is meant to be. I think we're created to question, we're created to learn, to puzzle things out, and to make our faith our own. So let's dig out some of these uncomfortable scriptures this morning that have been resting on the back burner, and let's explore their significance. Take a deep breath. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Let's spy right into the next one. 1 Timothy 2, 11-12 Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, don't flock to the doors quite yet. Take a deep breath. And we're going to tackle this together. Some of you, th these scriptures will make you incredibly uncomfortable. Let's take a look at the first passage found in Corinthians. At the time of this letter to the church in Corinth, Paul's writing to a church that was young. The message of Jesus was undoubtedly spreading like wildfire, and it did so because of its countercultural message. It proclaimed freedom to the captives. The message proclaimed love for all people and charity for the poor. Consequently, you had the slave, you had the weak, you had the widow, you had the poor, you had women in general flocking to the church and clinging to the message. 
It was revolutionary at this time to be so loved, so cared for, and so affirmed. When we look at these passages through our modern lenses, they seem grossly offensive. But as any good historian knows, when looking at a primary source, you must apply a tool called historical perspective taking. Shout out to my faculty of education friends who are in this room because I know there's a couple of you. Historical perspective taking. What is the author saying? Who is he saying it to? And why is he saying it, perhaps most importantly? Consider this. Paul is instructing women to be silent in a society which already bars them from teaching. He is telling them to learn at home from their husbands when women aren't even supposed to be educated. It is argued that the inclusivity of the gospel attracted so many people that initial church gatherings became meetings without teaching, rather filled with questioning and opinions. Instead of focusing on an explanation, explanation of the teachings of Jesus. And Paul, operating within his first century context and his first century perspective, asked women to learn in quietness, to mull it over with their husbands at home. During a time when it was forbidden to be educated, Paul encouraged women to learn. He simply asked them to do it in a controlled manner. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul praises specific women in leadership for spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His words in chapter 14 aren't directed to all women, but simply to those creating disorder in the church at the time. We know that Paul's letters to Timothy and the church in Ephesus deal with false teaching when we study them from the front to the back. People are beginning to take the message of Jesus and they're beginning to... This is really annoying. Just a second. back at it. Right, the letters to Timothy, uh, they deal strictly with false teaching. Not strictly, they, they cover a lot of things, but false teaching is right at the crux of what Paul is addressing. And people are taking the message of Jesus, they're putting their own spin on it in, in, to find some way where this message could benefit them in whatever the way they wanted it to. And Paul calls out widows as being some of the most influenced by this false teaching. And as a result of being influenced by false teaching, they go and they spread the word to more people and perpetuate and propagate these false ideas. Paul tells the whole church, both men and women, that they must submit to the authority that is already put in place in the church. Learning from either a man or a woman requires submission to a teacher. The linkage between learning and submission is not a specific characteristic of man or woman. It's a characteristic of student and educator. It's the cornerstone of learning for all people. And Paul is saying here that you are free to learn. You are free to minister but you must do it. Do so responsibly. Don't be disorderly. Don't be discourteous to those around you. And ultimately, whatever you do needs to edify the entire body of Christ. YWAM founder Lauren Cunningham writes this. 
So should women be silent? Yes, just like the men. Should women be prepared to minister with a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation or a tongue of interpretation? Yes, just like the men. Should women exercise self-control as they minister? Yes, just like the men. Should women seek to educate themselves so that they can better edify others when they minister? Yes, just like the men. For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. And for those who would still contend that Paul valued men over women, we can look at a variety of scriptures where perhaps the opposite is true. We see this in many other places where Paul didn't prohibit women from access to the gospel. Take a look at Romans 16, 7, where Paul says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. The 4th century bishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, said of Junia, To be an apostle is something great. But to be outstanding among the apostles, just think about what a wonderful song of praise that is. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was deemed worthy of the title apostle, a title traditionally given only to men. Junia is the first woman to be given apostle status in the Bible and is declared so by Paul. In Romans 16, 1 to 2, Paul writes this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church in, let me pronounce this, Sankrii. I ask that you receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and give her any help that she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including myself. Theologian Scott McKnight writes regarding Phoebe that it is possible that Phoebe, a benefactor or wealthy patron of Paul's ministry bring, of bringing the gospel to the Roman Empire was responsible for getting his letter out to the right people. Most today think that Phoebe was Paul's courier for the letter to the Romans. Since couriers were charged with the responsibility to explain their letters, Phoebe probably read the letter aloud and answered questions that the Roman Christians may have had. Phoebe, to put this graphically, can be seen as the first commentator on the letter to the Romans. I believe we could be here all day, continu continuing to pour into the letters of Paul, to explore what they mean for the church that he wrote them to, and, and, and what they mean to us. But I want to take this somewhere else. Jesus Christ is the central figure in Christianity. His life, his teaching, his death, and resurrection, all tied together. I want to continue our exploration of the scriptures, our guiding light, to explore well-known interactions between women and Jesus, and to see what these interactions tell us about how Jesus viewed women, and how I believe that we should be adopting his views. We're going to take a look at three encounters that he had. The first one comes from Luke 10, 38-42. Now, as they went on their way, he, being Jesus, entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. 
But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Then ask her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, Mary, you are worried and distracted by many things. And there is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, we have two women. One who has a task list to accomplish, and the other who's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he has to say, as the scripture puts it. Now, the position of Mary at Jesus' feet is intriguing to us. Jesus is traveling with his disciples, as first mentioned at the beginning of the verse. And it's, it's... Jesus is traveling with his disciples, as indicated at the beginning of the verse, and we can assume that his disciples accompanied him upon entering Martha's house. Mary took a seat next to Jesus' disciples, learning from him. And in ancient Jewish culture, the place at the foot of the rabbi belongs to the rabbinical pupils, who were exclusively male. And here we have a woman in a formal position of learning to arguably, well, I guess in the perspective of Christianity, to the greatest teacher of all time. No woman before Mary had the opportunity to formally learn in this setting. And Martha took it upon herself to appeal to Jesus' authority and to remind Mary of her cultural place. But Jesus' response didn't perpetuate the patriarchal norms of the time. Rather, he tells Martha that Mary's right to be sitting in front of her will not be taken away from her. And if that isn't making a claim to equal education, then I'm not quite sure what is. But let's move on from Mary and Martha to discuss Jesus' interactions with a crippled woman that he chose to heal on the Sabbath day. And that we find in Luke 13, 10-17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And then a woman appeared with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand upright. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each one of you untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to give it water on the Sabbath? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And when he said all this, all his opponents were put to shame. And the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. And I think that this is kind of an oh snap moment. I would argue that Renaissance renderings of Jesus Christ with halos and lambs aren't exactly the Jesus that is portrayed in a passage like this. Jesus took an incredibly unpopular stance, an unheard of stance, on healing on the Sabbath day. Nevertheless, he healed a woman on the Sabbath day. A day considered to be the holy of holy days to the Jewish population. Apart from pointing out the obvious hypocrisy 
of the synagogue leader for actually doing work on the Sabbath and then condemning Jesus when Jesus decided to heal someone, interpreting that as work. Jesus did something profound. He called the woman a daughter of Abraham. And people understood what it meant to be a son of Abraham. And you can guarantee that everyone in that synagogue understood what it meant to be a son of Abraham. The man who entered into a covenant with the Lord years before. It's for years that genealogies had documented the fathers and sons looking back to Abraham considered the patriarch of the faith, whose family line includes notable figures, including, say, King David. Abraham's bloodline is valued. His bloodline is respected. But Jesus gave this woman a position that she had never had prior, that no woman had had prior. He put her on a level with the sons of Abraham. On the same level as the leaders who were disgusted with the fact that she was healed, on the Sabbath day. On the same level as the religious figures who were trying desperately to save their institution while Jesus was slowly disassembling it. Author Sarah Bessie states this, In Him, you are part of the family. You always were part of the family. And I think that speaks volumes to the fact that He called her a daughter of Abraham. He recognized her. And let's explore one more interaction that Jesus has with a woman. In my opinion, perhaps the most significant one. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well. And this is a a long passage with significance that, that we could be here all day talking about. So let me offer a quick backstory. Jesus was a Jew. This woman was a Samaritan. Samaritans were the half breeds of the time. They were composed of both Jew and Roman. A combination made them worse off than Roman oppressors because it meant that somebody in your family line line had fraternized with the enemy and that you were the offspring of that. Simply put, Jews and Samaritans didn't hang out with each other. And Jesus is passing through Samaria and the Samaritan woman, he comes across her at a well and he asks her to draw some water for him. And the woman replied to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? The fact that she recognized Jesus as a Jew, this conversation between us should not be happening right now. And Jesus begins to tell her of water, water that only he can give. Living water which will daily renew your strength, will daily renew your soul, and water which gushes up eternal life. And this is where we pick it up in John chapter 4. 15 to 19. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true said to him, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. From here, the woman recognizes that Jesus has some sort of religious authority. She begins to ask questions questions about the differences in worship between the Jews and the Samaritans. And Jesus informs her that all things are changing and that people will all begin to worship the Father 
And the woman replies, I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus replied to her, I am he, the one that is speaking to you. And picking it up a couple verses later, the disciples come back. And they're astonished that Jesus is here speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and she goes back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. And many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And he said to the woman, it is no, or and they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Here we see Jesus not only interacting with a woman, but a woman who, according to the law, should be killed for the amount of husband she's had and the fact that she's currently living in adultery. Jesus engages her in a theological discussion, providing answers for the questions that she has about the scriptures. And this conversation is the longest conversation that is recorded between any one person and Jesus in the scripture. Jesus takes time to converse with society's outcasts, a shamed woman. Furthermore, this is the first time that Jesus tells anybody that he is the Messiah. And who does he proclaim it to? A woman. This woman goes and she shares what she has heard. She spreads the good news of Christ Jesus and her story influences her city to go and to hear from Jesus directly, to go and hear the good news that Jesus is truly the Savior of the world. I want you to consider the story of Mary and Martha, and to consider the story of the daughter of Abraham, to consider the story of the Samaritan woman, but also consider the woman caught in adultery who Jesus did not condemn but rather instructed to go and sin no more. Consider the woman who reached out to grab Jesus' cloak in the hope of healing. And when Jesus realized this, instead of condemning her or talking down to her, he praised her for her faith. And consider the fact that in a synagogue, Jesus told the crowd that woman was not merely blessed by giving birth to the children, but by hearing the word of the Lord and putting it into practice. Consider the fact that Mary Magdalene, who was the first witness to the resurrected Christ, was the witness during a time when women's word could not hold up in court. But Jesus sent a woman to proclaim the good news that he has risen. So where do we go from here? How does this matter to us as a body of believers? The practical applications of recognizing equality between men and women are limitless. It may be time for some of us to look at our hiring practices. Or perhaps it might be time for us to stop it with our gender-based jokes. 
And I believe that for us, it means that we are to encourage the women in our lives to operate in their spiritual gifts. And Acts 2 verse 7 reads, In the last days it shall be, as God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and that young men shall see visions, and that your old men shall see dreams. John Wesley's mother, Susanna, once said this, Since God uses women in the conversion of sinners, who am I that I should withstand God? And it's William Booth of the Salvation Army who once exclaimed that, My best men are women. Throughout church history, women have played a vitally important role, and there's absolutely no denying it. And I would argue that women play an equally important role in the body of Christ today. More importantly, I would argue that women play an incredibly important part in the future of the body of Christ. Take a look here at Soul Sanctuary. Look at Becky Weens, the children's ministry assistant, who's completed her BA and her B.Ed and is operating within her passions where she works. Look at Shauna, the children's ministry director, who happens to be an ordained minister and is completing her master's degree. Look about the steering committee of Soul Sanctuary, which is encouraging to me when I see that it's represented by women such as Debbie Robinson, Odette Fernandez, and Tamara Craker, making major decisions about where this church is headed that impact the future of Soul Sanctuary. The church is to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, to be in tune with His guidance, and to follow the Spirit wherever it is leading. And both men and women are to join together, operating in the gifts of the Spirit, following the guide set out before us. Men and women, together, operating in the grace that has been bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ. I want to take you back to Galatians 2, verse 28, the verse we started with this morning. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I'm, thank you. I'm not arguing for you this morning to identify yourself by the term feminist by any means. I'm imploring you to recognize that there is no basis for favoritism within the body of Christ. We are all members of the same body. We are all called to peace. We are to work together, being led by the Spirit, sharing the good news, the free gift, the grace that Jesus Christ has given to us and that He extends to every single human being. We're different. We all have our own strengths and our own gifts. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we are one. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you with a thankful heart, thankful for your grace and the fact that you extend your hand to us and invite all of us into a life with you. I thank you for your peace. Thank you for your love. We just thank you. I pray for each person here that when we're faced with tough questions, Lord, that you would give us the resolve to seek out answers. And that when we struggle to find true worth, that you would illuminate our path. May we attune our hearts to the leading of your spirit. And may we learn to walk alongside each other, members of one body, living, moving, and breathing for the sake of you. And we love you.
Now, as demonstrated in Numbers chapter 6, priests of the church have historically pronounced blessings at the end of their gathering. So if you'd like a blessing this morning, I ask you to rise and to extend your hands. And as you go, go boldly. Go boldly understanding that we are members of one body who are called to peace. Go boldly and ask the tough questions. Go boldly and search for answers. Go boldly and ask the Lord for wisdom. And as you go, go boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus to everyone you meet. Go believing and rejoicing in Christ even more boldly than you have before. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Have a fantastic week.